Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that calls itself Killgrave because Murder Corpse was already taken. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the mind-controlled of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Jessica Jones Season 1, Episodes 9 and 10. Okay, Lonnie, we're coming in for a landing on this season, which means there's almost no new stuff, you know? (laughs) Like, almost. We do have one inkling of new thing, but I am going to wait and talk about it next episode because it really becomes a thing in the in the okay. next batch, right? Okay. And that mm-hmm. is finally explaining what's going on with Simpson. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least in as much as the 616 is a window into that. Yes, right. But for this episode, we're going to talk about the jobs of Jessica Jones. I love it. You know, I love the love story between like a woman and her job. You know, that is yeah. like one of my favorite things. And you were talking about the loves of Jessica Jones, you know, before. And now we're going to talk about the jobs. And I am just as excited about hearing about all of the jobs that she's had. <laughs> Absolutely. No. And, and she really hasn't had that many jobs. And honestly, mm-hmm. all of them use the same skill set. But, sure. you know, but that's actually I will wrap up with explaining why it is very good news that they all use that skill set. So now, as we all know, Jessica Jones has worked as a talented, if not exactly <laughs> monetarily successful, independent private investigator at her one woman shop, Alias Investigations. Mm-hmm. Right. Lots of cases have gone through there, but probably my favorite is when J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Even I know that name. Sure. And for those of you who may not, this is the publisher of the Daily Bugle who uses his newspaper to shit all over Spider-Man's head, man. (laughs) This is the kind of guy that runs a front page that says, Spider-Man, threat or menace. (laughs) He hired Jessica, in fact, to discover Spider-Man's secret identity. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point in her career, I don't believe Jessica had really had much interaction with Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But frankly, she probably could have figured it out if she'd really put mm-hmm. her mind to it. You know, she's pretty good at her job. Mm-hmm. And Peter's not like Matt Murdock bad at keeping his secret identity. But, <laughs> right. you know... He's not necessarily the best. He's pretty paranoid about it, honestly. Boy, we'll mm-hmm. talk about that a little more in Civil War and in Homecoming because because Pete's pretty serious about that secret identity. But really, if he doesn't know somebody's looking and she's very good at her job, she could probably sort it out. That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But after Jonah, in their initial meeting, verbally shat on literally every aspect of her life as a woman, oh a superhero, God. and a P.I., <laughs> She took the job just to make sure Jonah never found out. Oh, I love it. For a few months, she worked at homeless shelters because she, air quotes, heard someone at the shelter knew who Spider-Man was. (laughs) She worked at an AIDS ward because she, quote unquote, heard Spidey was an orderly. (laughs) And she also worked at various orphanages because, 
quote-unquote unnamed superhero sources told her Spider-Man was an orphan. Oh. Now, we know that when she kind of got accidentally correct. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> she read to kids. She bought them cupcakes. She bought supplies for the homeless shelter. And she purchased gifts for those people that were in the AIDS ward and made her own $200 an hour the entire time. All uh. of it on Jonah's dime. <laughs> I love it. He eventually figured it out after he received an invoice for like 200 bucks worth of tapioca pudding. <laughs> and he was not pleased. Jessica, however, slept the sleep of the just. I mean, come on. I love how she's using good deeds to stick it to Jonah Jameson. That's awesome. Well, she's covering her ass, right? Because yeah, uh, sure. as he's screaming into the phone about how he's going to sue her over all this, yeah. his editor-in-chief, Robbie Robertson, is in the back going, let it go, Jonah. What are you going to do? <laughs> sue her for working at homeless shelters? Let it go, Jonah. <laughs> Right. It's not going to be a good luck, Jonah. <laughs> exactly. And this is a man who's got, you know, enough bad looks. What with the sure, bristle brush sure. hair, the mustache, yeah. etc. <laughs> now, much to everyone's surprise, later on, just by being a good person who helped mm -hmm. find a missing spider woman, Jessica found herself back in Jonah's good graces because the spider woman that was missing that Jessica found happened to be Jonah's niece. Ooh. So because of that, JJJ offers her a job at a new weekly news magazine created by the Bugle called The Pulse. Uh-huh. Jonah had realized that his vendetta against superheroes was possibly hurting his circulation just a little <laughs> bit. Right. And he decided to create a specific space in the newspaper that would only be about superheroes. Mm-hmm. And while Jessica has no idea how to string more than probably three sentences together in an attractive way, right? right? Just she just writes reports, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's a skill, but it's not writing for the bugle. Mm -hmm. She was the viewpoint, right? Like she was the ex-superhero with friends in the community, and she was with Luke Cage at that point. And mm -hmm. and they were going to let Ben Urich write the actual Ooh, stories. I remember him. That's right, because in the 616, mm -hmm. he's not dead. Right. Now, this job actually worked out for Jessica for a while. Um, she took it not only because it was actually a good job, but she was very pregnant with she and Luke's baby at the time mm -hmm. and needed insurance. <laughs> Part of this deal, though, was that Jonah insisted that when the baby was born, the bugle would get the exclusive. Okay. But as we know, Jonah cannot keep his mouth shut. Right. And he bashed Luke Cage and a new group of Avengers right there on the front page of the Bugle, knowing that they were having a child together. Oh, God. By the time Danielle was born, though, Jessica was so angry at Jameson that she called him while she was in labor <laughs> to inform him that he would not, in fact, be getting the exclusive. And I am not entirely clear on when she officially stopped working for the Daily Bugle, but I suspect it was shortly after this moment. Right. <laughs> and now, that pretty much ends any of Jessica's careers that don't involve superheroing. Mm -hmm. Because since that moment, she's kind of gotten back into the game some, you know? Yeah. She den-mothered the Young Avengers for a while. 
Mm-hmm. She became an official Avenger alongside Luke, first as Jewel and then as Power Woman, as discussed. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. She later operated as a defender during a storyline that I've already complained about a lot and won't mention this time, except seriously, don't predicate big line wine stories on Captain America being a Nazi, you bunch of fucks. <laughs> Since then, though, she's given up costumed identities, but will lend a hand when any Marvel heroes need help with detecting things. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a bit of a rabbit trail that I won't go too far down, but actual Mm -hmm. detective work is a pretty big deal over at DC. Mm -hmm. This is probably because one of their three biggest characters is the world's greatest detective. Wow. Right? Batman. He's the world's greatest detective. So Mm -hmm. being a detective is a big deal over at DC. Over at Marvel, there aren't many superheroes actually known for being able to put clues together. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty great that they have Jessica to call on because otherwise, you know, it would just be like phone books and Google. (laughs) Wait, you mean detectives do more than just look in phone books and search on Google? Yes, ma'am, they do. <laughs> they absolutely do. There's a whole set of skills. And just so we're clear, this is not me giving Marvel a hard time mm-hmm. without anyone else noticing that this is a thing. Uh, there is a Spider-Man cartoon that my son very much enjoys. And there was actually an episode where a bunch of his friends were like, well, how do we find the thing? And he's like, I don't know. I usually just swing around until I find a mugger or somebody tries to kill me. <laughs> Like when it came to actually solving crimes yeah. or putting clues together, uh-huh. we lack those skills. So, I see. so it's good that Jessica is there to basically do that for literally everyone. Sure. Because mm-hmm. no one else is good at it. All right. Very cool. Well, now that we're done with our four color facts, and I'm very much looking forward to what we're going to talk about next week because we dip into that a little bit in uh, in these episodes. Let's go ahead and talk about these episodes, starting with episode nine of season one, a.k.a. Sinbin. In a.k.a. Sinbin, Jessica has Kilgrave in Simpson's torture room with a few inches of water on the floor so she can shock him out of consciousness if he misbehaves. She plays videos of him being experimented on as a child while recording him with a camera and speaking to him through a microphone and speaker system she can silence at any time. Her intent is to get evidence on camera that they can use to instill reasonable doubt in just one juror. She calls Hogarth in, and Hogarth tells her it's a stupid plan, but also tells Jessica that she needs a high-quality witness, a member of law enforcement, perhaps, to go along with the video. Jessica leaves Hogarth to watch Kilgrave while she runs out. Jessica finds Clements, the detective she tried to give Ruben's head to, and wants him and the cops to testify. He refuses, saying one of the cops claimed it was a prank. He's two years away from his pension, and those cops will all be put on suicide watch if the story comes out. Meanwhile, Hogarth talks to Wendy, trying to get her to give up her claim on Hogarth's money. After the call, Kilgrave gets Hogarth to turn on his mic, and she listens to him as he tries to convince her that his abilities aren't inherently bad. There are things he can do, like make stubborn problems disappear. Hmm? Hmm? Jerry walks over to the camera and turns it on, asking him to say it again. Trish brings Simpson to the hospital. He's near death and insists on seeing Dr. Kozlov. While they wait, he tells Trish that she has to go fetch the gun he gave her and kill Kilgrave. 
The doctor shows up and kicks Trish out, then makes Simpson mysteriously all better with red, white, and blue pills. He warns Simpson about taking more reds, but as soon as he leaves, Simpson takes the reds. Because of course he does. Jessica returns to the torture room with food for Kilgrave. Hogarth is pacing, clearly struggling with her choice. Jessica turns on the camera and goes in to see Kilgrave and beats him to a pulp while he plays the victim. Trish comes in and shocks the water. They still have nothing they can use. Time to come up with a new plan, like finding Kilgrave's parents. Because how could that possibly go wrong? Hogarth has a plea deal for Hope that Hope has to take, like, right now, or she could go to jail for, you know, forever. Hope calls Jessica and tells her she's going to take the deal, but Jessica says no. She needs time to get the evidence Hope needs, or Kilgrave gets away with everything he's ever done. Hope agrees. Jessica goes to get Kilgrave's parents, who are living in a hotel nearby. They tell their side of the story. Kilgrave was born with a degenerative disease, and those experiments were meant to save him. But they also gave him powers, and he made his mother iron her own face. Jessica explains that Kilgrave has ruined many lives, and they need to go with him to keep him from ruining any more. Meanwhile, Clemens gets an anonymous text showing video of Jessica beating the hell out of Kilgrave in the torture room. Just as Hogarth is about to set Kilgrave free so he can fix her Wendy problem, Jessica returns to the torture room with Kilgrave's parents in tow. Clemens shows up, gun drawn, but Trish pulls her gun on him and takes his way. They chain him to the wall. He's going to be their witness to a whole slew of crimes, apparently, but all Jessica's thinking about, clearly, is proving what Kilgrave is. She turns on the camera and sends Kilgrave's parents in. After a show of reconciliation, Kilgrave's mom stabs him with a pair of scissors, and when Jessica tries to hit the zapper, it fizzes out, close up on Hogarth's guilty face. Kilgrave makes his mother kill herself, and Trish empties her gun through the window, destroying it and failing to take down Kilgrave. Kilgrave steps out of the torture room and takes over. He tells Trish to shoot herself, and she tries, but she's already emptied the gun. He commands Clemens to follow him, and Clemens breaks his hand to get out of the cuffs in order to do so. As Clemens follows Kilgrave, so does Jessica. Kilgrave orders her to let him go, but she doesn't, so he tells the detective to get her off of him. Clemens jumps on Jessica, and she kicks him to get away. She runs out into the street and looks for Kilgrave. There's no sign of him, but she realizes now that she's immune to his powers, so, you know, that's something. AKA Sinbin was written by Jamie King and Dana Barada and directed by John Dahl. All right, so Joshua, AKA Sinbin, I think out of these two episodes is probably maybe the better one. Wow. <laughs> but um, it's still kind of a problem. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's yeah. damning with incredibly faint praise. Yes. Uh, I believe mm -hmm. we've talked about the kind of saggy middle that a lot of these Netflix shows have. And yeah. I mentioned that Jessica at least saves hers till the back third. Right. We're here, baby. We have arrived. <laughs> This is the saggy middle. Um, yeah, okay. So one thing, like, and and uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's stuff that I've missed, but it seems like this is a really stupid plan. I mean, I would say that there is a desperate plan underneath this yeah. that has yeah. a bunch of like gaudy, stupid Christmas decorations hanging off of it, like. <laughs> <laughs> the underlying plan is not fantastic, but it but yeah. it's a desperate plan. Like we know this. Yeah. But then 
the script needs everybody to turn into a bunch of gibbering damn chimps. Right. That's when it gets like really stupid. So I, I don't know that you're wrong, yeah. but I, I guess what I'm saying is I could understand if Jessica's plan was kind of half-baked because what the hell else are you going to do? Yeah. But everybody else bouncing off of it dumber than hell is not a good look. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, when it comes right down to it, there are a gazillion witnesses to the things that Kilgrave has done. There are now, yeah. In the naked city. And a bunch of them are a precinct full of cops. Now, had it been just Clemens and, like, one other cop and Clemens, you know, he gives this whole excuse, right? He's two years away from his pension. Um, all of these cops would be put on suicide watch. they get removed from duty, whatever. Okay, fine. If it had been one cop getting removed from duty, if it had been just Clemens with his pension, I'd be like, all right, you know, I can see why the cops wouldn't... But there's... There's all of the people in the support group, right, who could testify. Um, There's a precinct full of cops. And I'm sorry, when it's a bunch of cops, when how many were there? Like 15 in that room? When all of them come out. Yeah, it's every cop on duty that wasn't out on patrol. I mean, it was not a tiny number. It was not a tiny number. And so you've got an overwhelming number of witnesses who can say, yes, he did this to me. Like, overwhelming number of witnesses you know there's the family that he was living with where he made the kids go in the closet and they peed themselves like those uh, after the 12 hours are over and they're not under his influence anymore there's a ton of witnesses so the thing is that like i would understand this desperate plan if there weren't a million people who could also say that this guy did this to them as well you know i mean it's not hope's word against you know like the evidence it is hope's word it is the survivors it is in a precinct full of cops it's clemens this detective um it's a million people who can testify to this i do not understand like it just it doesn't make any this plan doesn't make any sense putting him in the room makes sense and in, in keeping everybody else safe yes. from him because while yeah. he's in her medically sealed room you know but at the same time like jessica has also i mean when she brings Clemens in and she's like, you're going to be our witness. And I'm like, yeah, he's witnessing like 12 crimes that you are committing. Oh, right so now. many crimes. So many crimes. One of which is kidnapping him. You know, yeah. a good point. Chaining him to the wall. Like all of this stuff is crazy. And Hogarth also there for this whole thing, you know, and like, I understand she's a crooked lawyer. Like, She's a terrible person. She has no moral center, but she does have a very strong sense of self-preservation. Yeah. And there's like one point where she kind of like, you know, wimpily says, yeah, I'm going to call 911. Uh, no, like this is it. This went bad for her way before that point, you know, and I get I, I mean, I guess Hogarth, I kind of understand in that she really does want to use his power to get Wendy to like sign the divorce agreement without taking all of her money, all of that kind of stuff. Um, But at the same time, that doesn't feel quite strong enough because everything else that she's doing that she's involved in here is absolutely going to get her disbarred. Like all of this is worse than the, the stuff that Wendy has on her, you know? So 
I don't know. It all feels really thin to me. And it's one of these things that like in the moment, you know, the the moments are tense and yeah, the stuff yes. that's happening is interesting and the, the torture room is interesting and the water down at the bottom and the zapper and all this kind of stuff. Like there are all these elements that when you put them together, I mean, they're kind of cool. They're kind of interesting. It's an interesting premise, but I cannot for the life of me just forget how incredibly stupid this plan is. There are a million witnesses when it comes right down to it, you know? So that feels weird to me. Yeah, I can't argue. I mean, the only part of this that I think I buy entirely is Jessica Mm -hmm. being desperate, you know? But at the same time, why is she not thinking about the entire precinct full of cops? And I know that they made some lip service to it, but it's not enough. It's It's not not enough. enough. It's not near enough. And then she brings his parents in. Also, this is another thing. We're watching these videos of him, right? But not just him, like him and a bunch of other kids who are also being tortured. And, you know, if you're trying to give a kid some kind of treatment for his degenerative disease, um, putting the camera on, shooting him while it happens, strapping him down to a cold metal table and saying, Eric doesn't cry when he's thrown in the sin bin. Like all of that stuff still looks a lot like really nasty abuse. Like I don't, I don't believe their story. Did I miss something in their story that exonerates them? Because I don't feel like these people are really exonerated. Yeah. If we believe <laughs> yeah. what they say about how it was all in an effort to save his life and presumably the lives of all these other children, right? Who all had that same disease, I guess? Or, or something similar. I mean, something neurologically degenerative, you know, something close yeah. enough that the, that the cure might work. I, I don't. I don't. But then the cure, the cure gave Kilgrave his powers to do all those kids have those. Like it opens up so many more questions than it resolves. And we see that she, you know, ironed her face. Right. You know, Um, so like I understand that he took over, but like I don't think anything that he did afterward really kind of mitigates at all what we've seen in those videos. I mean, those videos really show something that, you know, even in the most generous of reads can't really be seen as trying to help those kids. I mean, if they're actually dying and then after the treatment, they are not dying. But there has to be gentler ways of doing it. I mean, the treatment, you know, like if there's a cold, you can't put, first of all, they're taping it, right? So they're doing experiments that they are taping on these kids so that they can see what's i don't know they they're tormenting him i mean clearly tormenting him um they're slapping him down on a cold metal table i mean if you're if you're going to give a kid a treatment that's going to save his life you're trying to make him as comfortable in as many ways as you would think yeah i understand if you're sticking a needle into his spine he's only going to be so comfortable but put him on a bed you know i mean the thing is is that what they've done is they've set up this clear torment you know, um, these experiments that are being done on these kids and then try to wipe it away with like, oh, no, he was dying. But like everything else that you did, that's not something that's done in the gentlest way possible. They are 
doing something terrible to that child and then saying things like, well, Eric doesn't cry when he's in the sin bin. If your kid is terrified and crying because of a medical procedure, which, by the way, I've had that experience. I had a daughter with asthma who was terrified of needles. Right. You know, and we had to put the needle in in order to get the medicine into her. So like it had to happen. But I didn't like berate her when that was happening and videotape it. I held her and I comforted her and tried to make her as comfortable as possible while we did the necessary thing. None of this looks like anybody's trying to like, so I mean, no matter what, even if they were trying to save his life, the way that these, these experiments are being done are clearly not taking the child's, you know, physical comfort and mental welfare into account. And so in that case, I'm not sure it's much of a mitigating factor for these people. It doesn't make them innocent victims in my brain. No, I agree. And I'm looking at this now and I'm thinking that there might be kind of a combined problem in in this episode. Mm -hmm. Like we wanted to have Jessica feel bad for Kilgrave in the moment that she saw the videos. So we had to make them as harsh as possible. Right. Mm hmm. Now they want us to see them in a completely different light, but they really didn't leave us any wiggle room. No, I mean, there's no way to look at that. And it's, it's like this stuff is written without understanding everything else that's been in the show so far, you know? Yes, yes, that's exactly what I was gonna say, because I think it's the same problem with the precinct. We wanted this really Mm -hmm. cool scenery chewing time in the precinct with yeah. no real desire to clean up that mess when we were done. And it feels it's like it's similar to the videos. We wanted this moment and then everything else can hang. Right. It's narrative shoplifting. You want something, so you take it and you don't pay yes. for it. Yes. You know, like you have to pay for it later. And this, I mean, this is sloppy narrative shoplifting. This is trying to put a microwave under your sweatshirt narrative shoplifting. It's not working, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, and so I can't forget all that stuff. Like this episode in and of itself, like out of context with everything else might be okay, yeah, you know? But absolutely. because I've I've actually watched the rest of the series, um, I'm looking at this and I'm like, no, this isn't working. And because I'm so distracted by all of this stuff, you know, I'm I'm not really in the moment when I'm actually watching it. I'm just thinking, well, this is stupid. Well, that doesn't make sense. And I'm I'm thinking, am I missing something? Did I not see right. something? Yes. Is there something in the script that I didn't hear? And so all of that distracts me so much that I cannot enjoy the episode. And I end up just kind of rolling my eyes. And then we have this Hogarth stuff. And let me tell you something. Oh, boy. As I'm watching the Hogarth stuff, we have actually the opposite problem, right? We have been setting up Hogarth needing his powers. Yeah. Like, yes. through the whole thing, right? We, we just keep seeing these scenes with her and with Wendy and with Pam. And then lather, rinse, repeat. Same thing over and over and over again. We have this moment with Pam where Pam is like, you know, basically seducing Jerry and saying, you're so tough. You're so hot, but you're not getting any of this until you fix it. Right. Um, Which is okay. I mean, doesn't seem like the Pam that we've seen so far, but we haven't seen a lot of her. So maybe that's consistent with her characterization. But as I'm watching this whole thing, I am thinking if we cut out everything with Jerry all the way through, except that one moment where she gets the fetus, the aborted fetus, right? Which gives you that little hint of question. And then just simply have this phone call with Wendy, where where we basically, again, reiterate everything. Wendy's got 
you know, got damaging stuff on Jerry. Um, Wendy wants all of the money. Um, we get everything we need in that one phone call. And see, up to this point, if we just have that little hint of, oh, there's something we shouldn't trust in Jerry, but it goes and we don't, we let it go and we ignore it and you kind of forget it. At this moment, everything snaps together so beautifully, but we've had it bashed over our head through the whole thing in this narrative that actually doesn't really matter as a narrative. It is simply motivating Jerry to want to set Kilgrave free, you know, but in the end, she doesn't even set him free. She just happens to be there when he gets set free. She runs off. She's the idiot that unhooked the safety zapper that killed the zapper yes you know so i guess we do have that but i mean but but no all that works better too if we don't spend so much time with her if we don't if you get that sudden moment where you're like oh she's motivated oh this has happened like if you don't see that coming it's more powerful in the moment this is one of those things where you shouldn't be seeding this because it is so simple it's you know like you see you can see a little bit of it you know she does hire jessica to like find dirt on her ex and all that kind of like you can have that we don't need all of those scenes well i mean we don't need all of hiring jessica to find dirt sets up the fact yeah. that she is at least somewhat unethical, which is what we need to know exactly. to believe the blackmail, which is what we need to know exactly. to be worried what she's going to do in the torture room. Yeah, exactly. it's... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I haven't hated every single second that Hogarth is on screen, but when we get to mm-hmm. this episode, this is the moment where I was like, you guys put way too much work into that and not nearly enough work into a bunch of other stuff. Exactly, exactly. So, and I think that honestly, Hogarth would work better if we had more subtly seeded this stuff, you know, all along and then have it, you know, where if you go back and look, it all makes sense. But instead, we've been like, hey, you see this that's going on with Hogarth? Yeah, we got this whole story that only matters for this one little bit of motivation, you know, that we're going to have a little bit later. Um, So I didn't particularly care for the Hogarth stuff. Um, And then we've got a little bit of Malcolm who, of course, is like one of my favorite things ever, you know, um, Malcolm talking to Jessica, you know, with the flyers, you know, giving out the flyers with Robin, which is sweet and also weird and uncomfortable. And I think it's okay. Like, I like that it's weird and uncomfortable. I like that we're in this space with Malcolm where it all feels wrong. But what are you going to do? He's just going to put the flyers out. What's he going to do? Confess? No. We're going to wait until later when he turns into a moron for that to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So, so we've got this whole thing with Malcolm where he's talking to Jessica and he's like, I scrubbed blood off your floorboards. I dumped a man's body in the river. And then she asks him a very appropriate Uh question, which is, and you want to spend more time with me? Very cogent. Cogent question. (laughs) And then we have this moment where she says, go help those people. That's your superpower. And I'm like, You know, I mean, at least Kristen Ritter pulled it off, you know, because that could be a really bad line in the mouth of the wrong actor. Um, But it's still not not great. And I mean, Malcolm is probably one of my favorite things. You know, I mean, I like him. I like him a lot. I like the actor. I like the character. Um, But it's it's all just a little bit too weird. I like that he's prepared to go to bat for Jessica this hard, because as far as he's (laughs) concerned, she did the same thing for him. Like. She saves him. He saves her. It's mutual, like they're peers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't even hate go help those people. That's your superpower because he's pretty clearly stepped into a really impressive leadership role in that group. 
Yeah. And I believe it, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you're saying, I mean, uh, it's not a great line, but the context and Ritter's delivery really sells it for me. Yeah. Um, I mm-hmm. love all yeah. that stuff. Uh, so so he does get a pass this this episode. Yes. <laughs> we'll come back to him episode. here in a minute. <laughs> he, he makes it. He lives for one more day. Yes. Um, but speaking of people who shouldn't live for one more day, uh, we've got a little bit of Trish and Simpson here, um, which I... I don't care. I hate Simpson. I don't like Trish as much as I did on my first watch through. And maybe it's because sometimes when you watch critically, you know, you think about things a little bit more and sometimes it makes things better, but it makes some things worse. And a close look at Trish makes her worse for me. So we have this. She's he's been, you know, exploded. (laughs) Right. Because at the end of the previous episode, he was blowed up on the street. She somehow I guess he calls her. She finds him. She brings him to the hospital. She asks for Dr. Kozlov, which uh, is always going to be, you know, ask for Dr. Kozlov just sounds like that's going to be trouble. You know, Dr. Frankenstein. No, Kozlov. Kozlov. Kozlov, yes, which is Russian for right. you know, Frankenstein. But anyway, um, so so then we have this doctor. Oh snap, come in, Lonnie, that's not a hint. That's doctor. not a hint for next time's four color facts. I'm just saying that was a joke. Okay. I just don't want you or any of the a holes thinking that I'm dropping hints. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I just that. felt like that was important for me to be clear. All right. So here's the thing, like knowing nothing, because I, I don't have the context of the 616, but just knowing what I know from the show. Here we have this guy. He comes in with these red, white and blue pills. You know, the reds are uppers. The whites level you out and the blues take you down from whatever it is. So I'm thinking <laughs> another super soldier thing. You are, right? you are you are on the right track. You're I think. Well, I mean, it's it's Marvel. You know, it's it's pretty much either super soldiers or radioactive spiders. Those are your choices. Like everything's that, right? Sometimes um, it's both. So Spider-Man 2099 is, is basically both. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> so here's the thing. Like what bothers me the most out of this is not the weird doctor that shows up at this hospital. It's not the red, white, and blue pills. It's not even Simpson. It's that when he takes these things, he chews the pills. Who chews pills? Nobody should chew pills. What are they? The Flintstone vitamins? No. <laughs> You take it with water like a normal goddamn human. So now I'm like, well, Simpson is clearly a monster because nobody should chew pills. I think he's probably chewing them so that they will actually work even faster and harder. Maybe. But I am bringing extra textual information about how pills work. (laughs) So (laughs) just swallow them with water like a goddamn human, Simpson. So here we've got Simpson who is clearly, you know, not trustworthy, clearly a shady guy. He's got this super soldier thing going on, which is almost always bad news, right. you know. Every time, um, but unless once. you have <laughs> exactly, unless you have the moral center of a Steve Rogers, this super soldier stuff is not going to end well. Um, so, in this episode overall, it's not good. You know, I mean, it's not as as terrible as as what we're about to yes. get, but it's it's not good. It's, it's a definite dip in quality, absolutely. And I want to say, by the way, I'm still here for Trish. Actually, I feel like yeah. she's kind of become more adjunct to the story than she was until mm-hmm. this point, which I think we can kind of chalk yeah. up to this episode, kind of not being sure what it's doing anymore. Yeah. So I'm still mm-hmm. here for her, and that they have found something for her to do while this other stuff is going on. Yeah. Hmm. And when it comes to Simpson, I want to remind you of a conversation we had at the beginning where I was with purpose bringing some 
later on in the series knowledge, you know, and Mm -hmm. that Simpson is 100% in this episode. And even I would say even more so 110% in the next episode becoming that good guy who's not really as good as he thinks he is. Yeah. You know, he's just going to yeah. stomp all over what everybody else says for their own good and that toxic masculine mm-hmm. stuff. And so I, I really like where he ends up as his own arc and what he's doing thematically for the show. But boy, do we mm-hmm. go down a Simpson cul-de-sac here for a bit. It's not yeah. great. Mm-hmm. It's not great. Yeah, we do. Okay, so before we move on, I would yes. like to bring up just a couple of things that I think are probably mm-hmm. going to get filed under this episode doesn't exactly know what it's doing, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that we have been watching this the entire time, and I know that we know who David Tennant is, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. But Kilgrave is very charismatic and very convincing, Mm -hmm. even without his powers. Right. And I have not thought about this at all until this episode when he's, you know, convincing ace negotiator Jerry Hogarth to do stuff. (laughs) And it just occurred to me that I was like, he's literally never had to have any kind of social skills at all, like ever. Right. Yeah. And when you combine that with kind of, I I mean, we're left in a kind of nature versus nurture or lack thereof place with the parents, I guess. Mm -hmm. But we've up till now kind of been accepting that he has some general sociopathy, you know, And when you put Mm -hmm. that together with never even needing to pretend to have social skills, I -hmm. don't understand why he isn't just a screaming asshole 100% of the time (laughs) who couldn't convince you to give him a dollar, let alone Uh, let him out. I just, and and like you were saying, you're you're taken out of this episode by all this stuff that seems a little shady or dumb. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what did it. It's just like all of a sudden I had time to think where I was like, wait a minute. Why is he so suave? Why does he have these skills? Because he doesn't have to develop them to manipulate people. But also like, you know, and I, again, like, you know, reality is no defense for fiction or whatever. But um, but I mean, like sociopaths in general, because they don't have empathy, because they don't have like the, it's fun for them to mess with people and you know and so i think that that it is believable to me in his um you know in his character development that you know he doesn't have empathy um but he's kind of fascinated with people Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like i i believe that he's fascinated with people and i believe that it may be a little bit of a game for him to see what he can do without using his power but also like it's uh, well yeah i guess because with his his power basically is that anybody who is in a room with him who can you know get the particles he breathes out or wears pheromones or whatever it is um anybody that he's in a room with if he says something to them if he tells them to do something they have to do it yes you know so trying to get people to do what he wants without having to command them may be part of a game that he plays just to amuse himself while he's around people. So I kind of actually do believe that he would develop those skills. That is a rock solid backfill. I like that a lot. Yeah. I remain annoyed that the episode put me in a place where I had to think about it. Yeah. No, I get it. I I think it's a solid question. 
you know, I think it's absolutely a solid question. And I do have to take like, I unfortunately do have some actual direct experience with sociopathy. So, um, so I do know a little bit more about it. And I have a little bit more like real experience (laughs) with it to believe that kind of thing. Um, But but at the same time, like, you know, regardless, it still needs to work within the narrative. And I think that that's a solid question. I would never have thought about it if I weren't yeah. already thinking so hard about this episode, which, yeah. If all the other wheels weren't so busy falling <laughs> off the cart, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you got one wheel left, you take a good look at it. <laughs> now, in that vein, another kind of Kilgrave question. Uh-huh. And I think this is less yes. going to be us being annoyed at this episode. And it's just kind of a character question, mm-hmm. right? So right. Mm-hmm. he was basically pure, unadulterated evil mm-hmm. right up until... We saw the videos, right? Yes. And now we have mm-hmm. a little bit of, oh, no, we, we, he's not okay, but we, we understand, right. oh, there was a turn, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when you bring the parents in and you put this like slapdash kind of coat of paint on the fact that they were trying to save his life, I don't yeah. know. It just leaves me in a place where I'm like, was he more compelling when he was... Uh, For the purposes of this narrative, was he more compelling when he was just raw, unadulterated, awful evil, you know, or Mm -hmm. did he become actually more interesting when they gave him a little bit of vulnerability? And either way, what the hell are they thinking about doing kind of doing it halfway with with the parents in this episode, you know? So I I was wondering about you because I know you have problems with like kind of capital G good a lot of times. Yeah. Would Mm -hmm. you have preferred him if he had remained just capital E evil? No, I actually really liked him with the vulnerability. I liked that there was something. I mean, the fact is that like no amount of vulnerability erases the badness of what he does. And it's not like even like some villains can be really fun if they believe that they are doing ultimate good. They really believe that they're doing the right thing and the thing that's going to be better for everybody else. That can also be really fun to play with as well. And I mean, the fact is that an antagonist has one job to do, like block the protagonist. That's it. Right. So, I mean, and antagonist can be full-on evil and it's much much less interesting you know see guardians of the galaxy right you know it's just it's not interesting when you've just got somebody who's like i would like to be bad because of bad you know um that's not interesting right when you have um a a villain who is um somebody that you can sympathize with somebody that you can even though you know what they're doing is wrong and you don't agree with what they're doing you can have that sympathy it is it creates like a really engaging narrative and again like you don't have to do that you can have you know a plain flat mustache twirling villain and it doesn't matter like as far as the narrative is concerned as long as you're blocking the protagonist you're good to go right it makes a functional narrative but it does make a more interesting more crunchy more philosophical narrative when you kind of put those things and when you make somebody you know like doubt your hero yeah you know and have doubts about the way that you're here like here we have you know jessica jones as this anti-hero character right you know which is really kind of interesting and fun and crunchy and you get her vulnerability too and then you have this villain with a backstory that is very painful and that gives him a lot of vulnerability and you can kind of understand like it's still wrong 
you know, but you can kind of understand. So it it's more fun to work with, I think, a protagonist that isn't all capital G good. And it's more fun to work with an antagonist or a villain that isn't all capital B bad, yeah. you know. Um, it gives you more crunchy space to work in, while at the same time, your narrative does not require either <laughs> of those things. Um, and it depends on the kind of narrative that you're telling, whether or not you want to do that. That's that's just a, a, a it's a creative choice, you know. I, yeah, I, um, that's kind of... Now I'm realizing it is because all the wheels were coming off that I'm asking because yeah, I was fine with him as a pure unadulterated force of evil because it was so pervasive, you know, I kind of even like that kind of pure evil more if it's just banal vanity at the end of the day, you know, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but then you give me this moment of vulnerability and then you kind of half take it away. Like we're now we're struggling over it. Yeah. And yeah, just again, it made me, yeah. made me wonder what, what would I have preferred in a Jessica Jones that did not have episode nine, you know? Yeah. I think, I think I preferred it with the vulnerability. Yeah. No, I think I could have gone either way, honestly, but then they have take it away and I'm just fine. Whatever. Well, see, that's the thing. Like if I, I don't care which way you do it, I'm fine really either way, but stick yes, with it. That's Make what a I'm choice and stick with it. Don't mess with us. Don't jerk us around. And once, once you give them that vulnerability, don't take it away again. Yes. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's all, it's not, not really well done. Um, but then we get to our next episode, uh, AKA 1000 cuts. And, uh, yeah, there's more wheels coming off that cart. In AKA 1000 Cuts, we're in Kilgrave's POV as he escapes the building, feet bloody, shot in the arm, and seriously peeved. Hogarth is racing away in her car and he commands her to take him with her. Asterisk, another opportunity for somebody to do something smart, and Hogarth, one of the smartest people in the series, does something really dumb. Just pull the trigger. (laughs) Just saying. Okay. Hogarth is horrified at what she's seen, but Kilgrave says his parents were monsters and commands her to take him to a doctor, someone she trusts. Jessica returns to the torture room where Clemens is suddenly on board. He's going to call cops in he can trust to preserve the evidence, and they have to go after Kilgrave. Trish tries to stop Jessica, but Jessica says she's free. Kilgrave can't control her anymore. Hogarth takes Kilgrave to Wendy's house to get fixed up. Two birds, one stone, gotta love her efficiency. At the torture room, Albert says he can develop a Kilgrave vaccine from Jessica's blood. But unfortunately, they can't unduct tape his arms because he'll try to cut his own heart out. Trish says she can be his hands. She gets some gauze and gets some of Jessica's blood from an open wound and they are on their way. Meanwhile, at Wendy's, Kilgrave and Wendy are bonding over terrible exes, and Kilgrave forces Hogarth to tell him everything, including that she took his aborted baby fetus and tried to replicate his power. He forces her to tell him where it is and then races out, commanding Wendy to get her thousand cuts in, and Wendy slashes Hogarth with a knife. Simpson shows up at the torture room and almost shoots Clemens, but they bond over their cop status. Clemens wants to put Kilgrave in the system, but Simpson argues that they can't. They have to kill him. When Clemens disagrees, Simpson pulls a gun on him because, of course, he does. (laughs) He pretends to be sorry, offers Clemens the gun, but Clemens doesn't take it. The second Clemens tells him where Trish is, though, Simpson shoots him in the head because, of course, he does. Then he lights the place on fire, destroying all of the evidence. As Wendy is slashing away at Jerry, Pam busts in and smashes Wendy in the head with a sculpture. Wendy falls against the edge of a glass coffee table, which skewers her, and she dies. 
Jessica comes in, scolds Hogarth, and runs off looking for Kilgrave. She goes back home to find Malcolm helping Robin put up flyers looking for Reuben. But she has bigger problems. She goes up to her apartment, drinks a bit, and there's Kilgrave. She says she's not under his control, but he says if she kills him, there will be a rash of suicides in the neighborhood. He also tells her that he has hope. Her release papers will go through in the morning. He's convinced the DA to let her go, but if Jessica doesn't give up his father, he can go right back and unconvince him. Jessica and Kilgrave travel talk about the day he let her out of his control for a few seconds, and she chose to stay with him anyway. She remembers it differently. She remembers almost jumping off the terrace. She hits him and knocks him out. Meanwhile, at the diner, Malcolm tells his support group about Reuben, and Robin is listening nearby. Sigh. She convinces the group that all of this is Jessica Jones's fault and they go after her. Where they got the pitchforks and torches, I'll never know. At home, Jessica calls Hope to tell her she'll be free, and as soon as she's off the phone, Robin comes in with her mob, knocks Jessica out, and finds Kilgrave tied up in the bedroom with duct tape on his mouth. She sets him free. Simpson shows up in the hotel room where Trish and Albert are trying to create the vaccine. He's acting crazy. Trish takes his pills from him and throws them out. Jessica wakes up on the floor of her apartment as the phone is ringing. It's Hope, wondering where the hell she is. Jessica races to the station, but Hope's gone. Kilgrave has taken her to his favorite restaurant. Jessica gets Albert and the untested vaccine and brings them to the restaurant. Albert sprays himself with the vaccine, and they go inside, where Kilgrave sits eating with Hope next to him. Robin, Malcolm, and two others from the mob are standing on the bar with nooses around their necks. Kilgrave tells them to step forward, and they do, almost at the edge of the bar. Hope tells Jessica to kill Kilgrave. Kilgrave commands Albert to come to him, and Albert does, helpless to resist. The vaccine didn't work! Hope breaks a glass and stabs it into her neck. Sigh. If she's dead, Jessica won't have any reason not to kill Kilgrave. Kilgrave commands the mob to step off the bar, and they do, starting to choke. He races out with Albert. Jessica pulls down the pipe the nooses are attached to, then runs to Hope, who makes Jessica promise that she will kill Kilgrave now. Jessica promises that she will, and Hope dies. Both literally and figuratively. <laughs> AKA 1000 Cuts was written by Dana Barada and Micah Schraft and directed by Rosemary Rodriguez. All right, so heavy sigh. Okay, clearly when I was talking about uh, Malcolm and the Flyers in the earlier episode, it was in this episode, my confusion, my problem. Very sorry. Uh we also can't be held responsible. We can't keep track of all the dumb shit, Lonnie. It's not our fault. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, here's another thing. Um, Jessica has this moment of realization at the end of the uh, AKA Sinbin, right? Where she's like, he can't control me anymore, right? But she already knows that she was able to walk away from him. She already knows that she wasn't, you know, was able to like resist his control then. Um, so now she just knows for sure. She's just doubly sure, I guess. No, I think that makes a big difference, yeah. actually, um, because we've seen in the flashbacks that she is walking away, but she's also like kind of confused and actually stops and looks back once before yeah. walking away again. Yeah. I, I feel like that's not a thing that she would have felt comfortable banking on until a crisis situation proved. To yes, her. I can. I guess I can understand that. But again, with all the other wheels coming off the cart, you look at the one that's left, <laughs> right. you know, um, more wheels have come off this cart than there were wheels on the cart. I know at this it is actually yeah. generating wheels to throw. <laughs> 
It's kind of crazy. I've never seen anything like it. Um, so this episode is really disturbing in a lot of ways and kind of difficult. I do have to say, though, I love Wendy and Kilgrave bonding over bad exes. And he's complaining about Jessica and she's complaining about Jerry. And they're just, you know, having this very human bonding conversation. And I kind of, I kind of like it. Uh, the death by a thousand cuts metaphor, I think is really nice. And when he makes that literal, it's terrifying. It's horrifying. When Wendy yeah. goes after Hogarth, I think it's incredibly effective you know, um, but still really, really disturbing. And all of that, when Pam comes in and Pam smashes Wendy in the head, and then on top of that head wound, she like lands on the coffee table in a way that skewers her in the brain with the edge of the glass coffee table. And yeah. that's an additional, like, you know, it, like you didn't have to do that. You know, <laughs> you just have her bleeding from a head wound on the floor. But having her so awkwardly skewered on the edge of the coffee table, it is all just so incredibly disturbing. That said, even though it was really horrible watching her slash up Hogarth, I kind of didn't mind it. <laughs> I really hate it. No, Hogarth. that scene, that whole thing, like from one end to the mm -hmm. other, they're like sort of weird bonding moment and yeah. the death of a thousand cuts and all of that is really good. Mm -hmm. Like it's better than any other double that running time in this episode yeah. or the last one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's pretty good. It's really super disturbing. Um, and then, of course, we have, you know, uh, Hogarth and Pam in the uh, in the police station and all of that weirdness. And then when Pam says, she's not my lawyer, I don't know who this woman is, you know, and I'm like, all right, you know, I could. It's a little much. Yeah, it, it's like right? you were doing OK with this part. You know, the, the stuff that I hated the most through the rest of it, the Wendy and Hogarth stuff, I actually, you know, thought was good. It, it's a very difficult scene to watch. I mean, it's horrible and disturbing and yeah, awful. Yeah. Um, but also, I kind of wanted to see Wendy with some kind of internal conflict as she's slashing Jerry, because the thing is that people, while they're doing what Kilgrave commands them to do, they are aware that they both want to and don't want to be doing it. You see a real internal conflict. But Wendy seems completely on board with this plan. Yeah. It makes me want to kind of reread a lot of Wendy as much darker. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is actually. cool. It's actually kind of interesting. And just as it gets interesting, you know, she's dead. But, uh, but you know, whatever. Hi, this is Noella Croy of Still Pretty. Chipperish Media is entirely supported by listener donations, which make all the podcasts you love possible. Podcasts like Still Pretty, about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Still Dead, about Angel the Series, Listen Up A-Holes, about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Orgasm, about explosive inspiration, Welcome to the End Times, about Good Omens, Metaphors Be With You, about Star Wars, and How Story Works, about... Well, how stories work. Chipperish Media's generous patrons keep all of Chipperish's great content free and ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how a couple of bucks a month can support one of the best independent podcast companies in the known universe. So then we've got, let's talk about, I guess it's about Simpson. Right. Uh, Simpson continues to be the worst, continues to be the worst. Right. He um, he's just 
really disturbing in this episode. So he busts in on Trish, right? Um, he is hopped up very clearly on something. And Trish can see it. And that's one of the things I like for Trish. Trish is onto him, right? Um, but he lives- <laughs> I know drug abuse. Exactly. Inside and out. Inside and, and out. you, sir, are abusing drugs. Having a skill set is always, you know, some skill sets just come in handy sometimes. So she manages to throw him out. Um, he's upset about the vaccination. And I am not sure at this point, like, what his motivation is. I'm not sure what, like, he wants to kill Kilgrave. He shoots Clemens in the head for reasons of, I'm not entirely sure, um, because he gets the information about where Trish and and, uh, and Albert are. So he goes to see Trish and Albert, and he's killed Clemens for this so he can get to Trish and Albert and then just lets Trish throw him out? I believe you've stated the case as it exists. Okay, all right. So, because uh, I'm thinking, am I... I'm constantly questioning myself. Is there something I've missed? (laughs) I mean, I don't have a problem with Simpson showing up, hopped up on goofballs, Mm -hmm. and taking his, no, Kilgrave has to die argument to a somewhat ridiculous level, right? He's been saying that since minute one, right? The system can't handle him, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, maybe that's why he shoots Clemens, because Clemens is a stand-up guy who is totally committed to that. And he just doesn't, Simpson just doesn't want to have to convince him. Right. But if he, like, if he goes and finds Kilgrave and kills Kilgrave before Clemens can get to him, I mean, I guess he's just trying to give himself more of a head start. And he is hopped up on goofballs. You know, so, I mean, maybe, but, you know... It's less the Clemens half and more the, okay, I guess I'll just let Trish throw me out. Right. And that's it, too. Like, he's just killed this guy and he's clearly after Albert because he doesn't want the vaccination to get out or he wants the vaccination for himself. So he's not under his control. But the thing is that if he's so desperate, he's going to kill Clemens. He's going to get this information from Clemens, then shoot Clemens right in the head right? Then rush over there. He needs, I mean, I'm presuming that he wants the vaccine so that he can be, you know, like free of any control when he kills Kilgrave. Why? Why? Why just, but, but Trish is annoyed. So he's just going to be like, oh, well, if Trish is mad at me, then I'll just, I guess, leave, you know, (laughs) like he's already in, he's already got the pills. He's already hopped up. Why doesn't he just take the vaccination? Yeah. It's a fair question. Okay. All right. So that also, not just me. All right, fine. No, I mean, kind of like we talked about before, like everything more or less works like in the moment. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I could even convince myself that doing something harmful to Trish is a bridge too far, even for hopped up Simpson. Because I really do feel like he has real feelings for her at this point. Right. But he doesn't have to like kill her. Like, he also didn't have to kill Clemens. But, but like, the fact that he will leave without getting what he came for, even if he has to be a little bit rough about it, even if he has to, like, just take it from Albert or whatever, um, whatever it is that he has to do, like, he's going to do that thing. And if he just killed a man to get here so that he can get this vaccine or prevent the vaccine from it? I don't even know. I don't, none of it makes we any sense. We don't know. I don't, it We don't know because Simpson doesn't know because the writers don't know. Because there you go. So then we've got Robin and Ruben and the um, 
you know, the flyers. She says this thing, though, about Ruben, where she says he can't even tie his shoes without my permission. And I'm like, okay, help would be like the appropriate word. He can't tie his (laughs) shoes without my help. But without my permission, like that. And actually, it kind of sheds this really very dark and twisty light on that relationship, which is already dark and twisty. So I'm actually okay with it. But it's it's an interesting choice and a very specific choice of words that makes me think that Malcolm may not be as interested in helping her at that point, you know, and actually has a really good excuse there to be like, that's not okay. Like, I'm not going to help you find this guy because uh, maybe he ran away from you, you know? Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that he could have done there, but Malcolm is like, okay, you know, and just continues to help her out. Um, So Malcolm goes to his group and sits down. Oh, God. And tells them everything about what has happened and what he did. And then Robin steps out from behind a potted plant or something. (laughs) I just heard everything. You know, all of it, this is truly, truly terrible. I mean, just terrible writing. This whole scene and then she... Why is she there? Why is she there? Why did she follow Malcolm? Did she suspect that Malcolm knew something that she didn't? She's mad at Jessica for reasons of, I don't know... She didn't know at that point that anything had happened to Reuben or that he had been killed or whatever. And Malcolm just tells this story in the middle of a public place to all of these people. And I mean, I get the need to kind of unload about stuff. But when you've committed like a fairly major crime, that's the kind of thing (laughs) you may want to keep to yourself. Well, and if you're going to. If you're going to kind of like spill over and tell these people in this moment, yeah. let's get a little more freak out kind yeah. of emotion from Malcolm. Yeah. No, it all it, it's all just bad. He's very calm in yeah. the telling of it. And it just doesn't jive. And it's also like if if Robin heard it, then literally everyone in the restaurant heard it. Yeah. And no one is immediately like sidling up to their smartphone to dial 911. Yeah. Or or is it just New York and nobody ever believes it? But why does Robin believe it? It's not great. This is the reprieve that we have given Malcolm in mm-hmm. the previous episode has now come due. This is yeah. this is where we do something so mind-bogglingly stupid just because the script needs us to. Just We've reached because. it for Malcolm. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, Robin also, like, first of all, when she suddenly steps out, it's such a soap opera move. Where's the organ sting? For serious. Yes, absolutely. It is so bad and so stupid. And then she gets this mob together and they attack her. And I mean, the thing is that like, you know, she does this whole like speech where she's like, hey, all of you people who were abused and manipulated by this guy, how about you let me emotionally manipulate you into becoming a wild mob going after this girl? And I don't understand why all of them are like, yes, let's go attack another human being. Like, none of that makes sense. No, nope. It doesn't make sense. It does not. So... It's bad. It's yeah. bad. There's been some discussion in the Patreon Discord uh, about how tight. I mean, like, I've been the person who's saying that of the Netflix Marvel yeah. stuff I've seen, Jessica season one is almost certainly the tightest. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Of all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and nevertheless, at the same time, mm-hmm. 
this is terrible. Like it this is, is terrible. This is this is a big hole in a building that we're not going to explain Daredevil terrible. Like this yes. is not good. This is uh, not good stuff. <laughs> it really really isn't. So then we've got Jessica and Kilgrave, right? You know, I mean like he goes to her apartment. They have this walk through memory lane. You know, we go back to her on the terrace in the yellow dress, you know, mm-hmm. and I loved the yellow dress. I thought the dress was great. I love the fact that she's got her shit kicker boots on underneath it. So <laughs> she's still got a little bit of her own identity under there. She's holding on to it, you know, um, at the same time, she has this vision of a white horse and she's going to jump down and ride off on a white horse. There's this whole thing, all of it unnecessary. None of it really moving the narrative forward. We already know like what happened in the past. He does talk about those 18 seconds where she wasn't under his control. And then she has to argue that she still was because her mind was all muddy and it doesn't do anything to like move this narrative forward. It's just, it feels like we're just like having fun in this space with them again. And we're going around this mulberry bush again, which we don't need to do. If we had to have that entire thing at all, that should have been done in the house. They should have had that whole conversation back when they were, reconnecting there briefly yes yes absolutely because we've already we already did all of that stuff then and then it was appropriate we got our fuller picture of everything that happened between them and so that was fine um in this moment it's really unnecessary then of course you know we have him escaping her and then getting hope and then you know the whole thing at the restaurant and then hope kills herself because Kilgrave says to her you're the thing she needs to save you know, um, and when Hope kills herself, she takes away Kilgrave's one, you know, bargaining chip, right? Because Jessica needs to save her. And Hope is just like, promise me, promise me you'll kill Kilgrave. And Jessica's like, oh, yeah, now I guess. Why not? Right. You know. Thanks. I hate it. Yeah. I just, I, it doesn't, honestly, it doesn't make any sense for Hope. It, no. it makes sense for Hope about five episodes ago when she was completely hopeless right. and just living in a dark pit. But she yeah. actually woke up that morning a free woman. Yeah. I, I just I just don't I just don't buy it. I mean, I get right. a lot of uh, trauma from Jessica and trauma from Hope. And I'm not downplaying any of that. Mm-hmm. But to move from I might go under his control again to yeah. I'm going to shatter this glass and stab myself in the neck and hope yeah. for the best mm-hmm. is just it's it is nonsensical sacrifice. It just it is. isn't good. It is. I have to say, though, the the people standing, you know, especially Malcolm being one of them, you yeah. know, standing on the edge of the bar with the nooses around their necks. I mean, that's a pretty terrifying visual. And the fact that he uses, you know, consistently these human shields, you know, to protect him with her, that if, if she does anything to him, that they're going to die. You know, I mean, it's it's something we're again, like we're hitting this note a lot over and over and over again. But again, it's like it's a it's a thing that works and he's just doing what works. Oh, yeah. The scene in the set dressing of that is great. It is. Even some of the conversations not bad. Yeah. But it ends really super dumb. It ends really super dumb. So you will recall at the beginning, I was like, look, this is hope. She's a metaphor. She's not named hope by accident. (laughs) She is Jessica's hope for saving 
Jessica retroactively, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is how I redeem that time is because I'm in a position where I can help this girl. She is a literal and figurative hope. And in the end, hope kills itself slash herself. Yeah. This is where the metaphor falls apart and it falls apart for no damn good reason. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to show that once upon a time, these people were doing very, very clever things. Yes. And that all of those are done now, apparently. And then they just lost it for these two episodes. And I do not understand what that's about. Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, But anyway, one thing that we haven't discussed yet, but which I'm very much looking forward to, is a treatise on Jessica and Doors. What do you got for me? Speaking of the metaphor that's still mostly working, right? (laughs) Right, yes. Uh, We come back to Jessica's apartment, right? Mm -hmm. So we're actually dealing with the door now instead of doors in general. And Mm -hmm. note, her door is no match for Kilgrave. Yeah. Like he just walks in. He Mm -hmm. is in her head and she will never entirely get him out. Mm -hmm. But the dynamic is different because he can't control her anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, it's different. He's in her space. He's in her life. He's in her head, but he is no longer the controlling factor in it. Mm -hmm. And I think as we go forward, you know, another few episodes, we are going to see that shift start to like take place in Jessica's life. Like we'll, we'll really see that roll out where I won't ever get rid of him, but he's no longer the driving factor, the commanding factor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought that it was really interesting that the mob yeah. did not have to break down the door, but definitely had to, like, take the door by force. You know, yes. they had to mm-hmm. penetrate into Jessica's life by force. But they were able to do that partially because Malcolm ran ahead trying to warn her. Yeah. And he, she opened it for him. And I feel like this is a really interesting metaphor for what happens when you start to care about people. Yeah. In this case. You let people in, literally Mm -hmm. and figuratively, in Malcolm, Mm -hmm. you know? And that is the right thing to do. That is the compassionate thing to do, right? Like, we are better people when we let people into our lives and when we go into other people's lives Mm -hmm. in that way. But you can't control the outcome all the time. You can't control how it affects you. It will probably, if you'll pardon me, knock you down a few times before you figure (laughs) out how to manage it. (laughs) Nice. I like it. Well done. Thank I really you. love I got to say like my favorite part of all of this is your door metaphor. But for these two episodes, we got to pick a favorite part that's actually in the story. So apart from your delight at yes. my analysis of Jessica's door, tell mm-hmm. me what are your favorite parts from these couple of episodes? Do you have one bright shining moment that maybe redeems things a little bit? I don't know that it redeems anything, but it's definitely was something that I really enjoyed. And it is when Wendy is working on Kilgrave and they are bonding over this bad ex experience. Like there's something very human and very vulnerable yeah. and and kind of almost fun in that moment, you know, where she is she's stitching him up, not of her own free will, but she's also a doctor. So she probably would have fixed him anyway. You know, because she's a doctor, because that's what they do. They fix people, you know. So she's there sort of under his control. But yet this bonding isn't the thing that he can actually force with people. Like the bonding is genuine. And uh, and I kind of liked that. I thought that was a lot of fun. No, that's very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you? What's your favorite part? Okay, I'm going to steal one moment 
from what we are agreeing are the best scene or series of scenes, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. After Pam has come in and clocked Wendy across her headpiece, <laughs> and we get that Dutch angle upward reaction shot yeah. of Pam with Wendy's head and face bleeding, you know, leaned in yep. that awkward angle, and then the camera's also oh. at an awkward angle. Yeah. Looking up at Pam, who is not even freaking out yet. Like, she's just yeah. blank. And yeah. I just, in that moment, I was like, oh, my God, the cinematography in this moment yeah. is so good. Real good. And it actually puts an exclamation point, I guess, on those scenes, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just as disturbing as the bonding moment. Yeah. It's just as bloody as the thousand cuts, you know? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the, it's just really is just encapsulates that whole bunch of scenes into one moment. And I was like, damn. So that's oh, my face. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by Chipperish producer Alyssa from Dallas. Alyssa supports Chipperish Media Productions at the power producer level and as a reward gets to be a man of her word. You know, if she feels like it. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions and makes Listen Up A-Holes a thing. To find out how you too can become a Listen Up A-Holes producer, visit the Patreon links in the show notes. Producer level support options are available at both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media. You can also show your support by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for people to find us and join in the conversation. Links are in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Jessica Jones, Season 1, Episodes 11 through 13. Until then, dude, you lost a jacket. Move on. She goes back home to find Malcolm helping Robin put up flowers. Oh, it's in this it's episode. It's fine. It's all garbage. Oh, <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs>